0: Hi, this is David Leach of the UVic's Department of Writing. The following interview took place as part of a series of conversations I had with authors and other guest experts on the topic of memory and the creative process in my Writing 501 graduate MFA seminar. We hope you enjoy. I am very excited to welcome a colleague and fellow creative nonfiction writer here today. Danielle Geller is a member of the Navajo Nation, a writer, an archivist, a weaver, and an assistant professor in the Department of Writing at the University of Victoria. She completed her MFA in Creative Writing at the University of Arizona, and also has a master's in Library and Information Science. Her memoirs and personal essays have appeared in Brevity, The New Yorker, The Paris Review, and other major journals. She won the Rona Jaffe Writers Award in 2016 and just released uh, her memoir *Dog Flowers* with One World Random House. Welcome, Danielle.
1: Thank you. Very excited. Very (laughs) excited to talk about my book (laughs) (laughs) with you and archives and memory. Like those are my favorite things to nerd out about.
0: Fantastic. Well, we always begin with this question. I mean, this is a series on, on on memory. What is your first memory of? wanting to be a writer or a storyteller or writing or or telling stories
1: yeah this is super nerdy Um, when i was 11 12 years old i spent a lot of time on the internet and i spent a lot of time in like aol member chat rooms and there's this whole like fantasy role-playing world um and i had this group of friends where you were basically just writing these collaborative stories together and I was like the leader of a wolf pack and we were writing all of these wars between the different like factions of wolves. Um, and, you know, that was sort of when I think the seed of writing really like took root in, in my life was writing all these silly stories about our wolves and yeah.
0: I don't know. I think that's an actually a cool <laughs> origin story. I got into writing by being the leader of a wolf pack. I mean, think better than mine. <laughs> Uh, congratulations on the publication of, of dog flowers it's a beautiful powerful book it, it explores memories of your family just through a variety of lenses and uh, I was telling the students it would be a perfect required reading for future versions of this course <laughs> um, um how does it how does it feel to have your manuscript of memories finally out into the world amongst readers
1: yeah it's um it's a, it's a weird book to be completely excited about because I share a lot of things that, um, you know, that are, that, that make me feel vulnerable, but that also, you know, like I'm worried about, or I would had a lot of anxiety about how my, my sisters especially would feel with a book out in the world, because even though it is, you know, my story, I lived it, um, they were living it with me, um. And my one of my sisters, the the sister that I grew up with, who is is most present in, in the book, we had a lot of back and forth over the years about, you know, she was like, why can't you write it as fiction? Like, why can't you change the names? Why can't you, you know, like, why does it have to be nonfiction? Um, and I think we're in a in a good place now about it. But that was certainly the most anxiety that I felt about the release of the book. Um, and and now i'm feeling better but (laughs) there's, there's still that anxiety there yeah
0: great Well, yeah, the memoir is interesting because it reproduces a lot of family documents such as photographs uh, letters even a job application to tell the story of your mother and and your your relationship with her memory both before and after her death and and rather than just being thrown in them you, you embed these documents in the text with this kind of precision and care of, of an archivist and you include details of the description and their provenance can you do you want to talk to us about your how your training and experience as a librarian and and archivist shape your approach to using documents and photos, both to access memory and and within your own creative process?
1: Yeah, um, you know, I I went into this book with that background and this idea that documents can have evidentiary value, And, and often that's why archives and institutions who hold records they're collecting these documents because there, there is some inherent value they're believed to possess to, you know, showcase or document some moment in history or some, some social or political movement. Um, and I was aware as I was processing my mother's letters and diaries that she wasn't a person that you would, usually, you would expect to see in the archival record you know like there's no institution out there clamoring for my mother's belongings um you know she's not a a politician she's not an activist she's not the kind of person that you see who would who would normally have their things sort of bought or or donated to an archive Um, and and so part of part of the project when i first started it was well why why isn't she a person who would be represented? And, um, you know, archives have seen a lot of change. There are a lot of community archives now that have very specific missions and like the, the kinds of things that they're collecting. And so part of what I was doing, and and when they're making these community archives, you know, the, the records they're creating to describe those archives, like the records that are really informal, they're not complete, but, but that's sort of what I was modeling the descriptions of the, the documents um, off of were these institutional records. And, and the goal of those is often to help a researcher just to find or locate the material. Um, there's some tension between historians and archivists about, you know, like a historian would be like, I discovered this thing in an archive and no one knew what was there. And the archivists are like, well, we knew it was there. You know, we took the time to describe it, but, but you're just doing more with it. Um, so there's some tension there. Uh, I think I'm, I'm getting off track a little bit, but, the, the bigger point is I, I had this background knowledge that, that a lot of these community archives, especially when they're they're dealing with indigenous records, they are not just relying on the archivists who you know, are trained, are educated, are coming from a different class, different background, different community to describe those objects. But now they're inviting elders and community members to come in and describe those objects within the larger context. And so I was, I was using some of the technical, um, you know, LCSH vocabularies, or I was looking at, you know, specific subject headings that people will be using for some of these, these records. And I was using the specific format that the Getty Arts and Architecture so thesaurus uses for these objects. And so I was borrowing some of that institutional language, but at the same time, I couldn't, I couldn't stop myself from giving more of like my memory or or my association or, or what i knew about about these objects as well.
0: Great. Thank you. I, I, yeah, no, it's a wonderful kind of blurring those those borders. Um, writing and publishing about uh, family members can be uh, emotionally and ethically fraught at at the best of times. And in your memoir, you describe your mother attending a reading, uh, I think you gave as an undergraduate after which she tells you, why would you write something like that? And then you Mm -hmm. admit that you, uh, quote, you did not write another essay, did not write at all until after she died, which is just kind of Mm -hmm. heartbreaking. And then later you describe how writing about your mom based on this kind of box of belongings uh, that you inherit, felt, quote, like Christopher Columbus, discovering the Americas, laying claim to things that are not mine which is just such a kind of poignant line uh, can you talk about the, the challenges of writing about family and just the emotional weight of the uh, the work and how do you decide what to include what to leave out what to share and and and, and whether to publish uh it yeah. or or not and and uh, tying it maybe into that that metaphor you i use of how it can feel like colonizing someone else's life and memory
1: yeah well i think you know there is a history of a, a painful and a violent history of colonization in in archives and museums um, and and back to that point of evidentiary value uh, what a what a document can or cannot prove that was really I think that was the most the place where I was changing my mind the most as I was writing the book at first I was like you know I have, I have all of this material I finally have um, some insight into you know my mother's life, all those years that, that we were separated, um, what she was thinking, what she was doing. But I would as I was reading them, I was discovering these inconsistencies and these places where it was like, there's so much that she's not saying. or this is this isn't true. Like I have information that tells me that, that the way that she's presenting this, even in her own diary, you know, even where she's not expecting anyone to read it. She's still obfuscating the truth of what is going on. She's still perpetuating or living um, this lie, and, and it made me realize, you know, like even with all of all of that information that I now had, th- that it it that I still there were limits to what I could know about her and and her life and how she felt or thought about things. Um, and so as as I was writing the book, as I was revising the book, I was really having to go back and question all of those things that I thought that I knew, not just about my mom, but about my relationship with my sisters and my relationship with my father and the things that I was told by my father's family about my mother and about me and my sister. Um, And, and I, yeah, I had to take sort of a a much more careful approach to the way that I presented information. And I think that was really the key to the way that I wrote about everyone in my family was that I had to be clear about the things that I didn't know. And when there was information that contradicted the information that I had, there were there times where it felt like it was important that all of those different pieces were given to the reader so they could sort of draw their own conclusions. and yeah and, and really like this book, writing this book um, shifted my my position within my family um, quite a bit.
0: Oh, interesting in, in, in what ways did it shift your position?
1: Yeah, well, I used to think that um, you know, growing up I was I was told that like I had to take care of my dad and I had to take care of my sister and and I was like sort of the center, caretaker. Like I was sort of being pushed into like the role of mother. Um, And I I kept hitting resistance, especially with my sister, Eileen, where, you know, like, you're not my mother. Like, you can't tell me what to do. Like, you don't know what's going on in my life. And for a long time, I'm like, you know what, you're just running away from your problems. You're avoiding like the hard truths. Like I had this, this feeling like this righteous, like anger towards her that but actually, like, I did know what was going on. And if she just listened to me, you know, like, if she just did the things that I told her to do, like, she wouldn't follow in the steps, footsteps of her parents. And, and like, this, this book helped me realize that, like, not only was I pushing her further and further away from me, but like, I didn't have all the answers. And there were a lot of things that were different about the way that our lives played out. Um, and it made total sense that, that she, um, you know, like have the relationships that she had and struggled with addiction the way that she did. And, and that I wasn't supporting her. Um, and I was like causing her real harm.
0: Yeah, it's interesting yeah, because I've had some of the most difficult sections to read, and it sounds like to to write are those ones about your sister Eileen because mm-hmm. you go off in in such divergent life directions. Is is writing about sibling a sibling different than writing about our parents? I mean, I guess there's a sense, that our parents brought us into the world. We can we can kind of speak back to them, but writing about a sibling, um, it, it might feel feel different, does it?
1: Yeah, I. I, don't, I, I think that I felt like I had a different responsibility when I was writing about my sister than when I was writing about my, fam- my my dad and my mom. And part of it was that, you know, my mother had passed away. And so that was a totally different consideration, right? Like, she's not here to speak back. She's not here to say like what was right or what was wrong or what might have been misrepresented. Um, and so I had to be, that was one way in which I had to be careful and not to like overstep um, in a way that, that felt untrue uh, or like I was overstepping. Um, with my father, he, he was, he, that was a different you know, situation because he had read an early draft. Um, I think he's the one who, uh, I, don't, I don't know if I would say like is portrayed the worst, but I think that in some ways he caused some of the most harm in the family. And I don't do a lot to, to hide or bury that truth. Um, and when he read it, he, I don't know, I thought that maybe like we'd have a a conversation or he would apologize, (laughs) you know, like we we would be be able to do some of that, like work to repair it. But he was just like, yeah, you know, like, like this one thing was wrong. Like I had said, he'd been dishonorably discharged. And he's like, I wasn't dishonorably just discharged. Like this happened. And like, that was the one thing that he corrected, which was, it felt bizarre and weird, but it just wasn't a conversation he was able to have, um, and with my sister, I think that the the main difference was it's like I was thinking about that relationship as one that's going to last a lot longer and one that is very important to me and that I want to take care of.
0: Okay. Uh, yeah that makes sense a bit of a shed I, I was really struck by the the repeated images of, of birds that punctuate the, the metaphor how does a natural world figure into your your memory process and how do you use kind of natural images or poetic images and techniques to to uh, deepen the the main narrative of your prose
1: yeah um I think some of that comes out of uh, You know when i was in these really intense like high stress uh moments throughout my life there was an amount of disassociation like just this like leaving that situation and letting my mind go other places and often the place that my mind would go or the place that it would land would be on like the natural world beyond birds or little lizards or plants like things that surrounded me and so when I have memories of these moments, it's it's often less about, you know, what I was feeling when those things were happening and more about what I was paying attention to and the strong visual associations I often had with these moments. Um, but I think especially with like birds and animals in the natural world, like that was where I found peace. And I often lived in like these really urban, like chaotic environments. And so, you know, I have really strong memories of being in Boston and just feeling like I needed to escape the city. And the one place you could go and like consistently find green spaces were cemeteries. And so I'd just be like in cemeteries with my binoculars, like looking at birds. And it wasn't because I was like, you know, like super got like goth and like, you know, like wandering around with the dead. It really just was like, that was the best place I could go to watch a bird and just breathe.
0: That's great. I mean, you write about yeah, your family at length in your book, but also in uh, your shorter fragmented uh, forms like The Origin of My Laugh and, and other uh, lyric essays. What is it like returning to certain memories and kind of relooking at them or reworking them through a, a different genre or, or a lens?
1: Yeah, I think that's part of the questioning that I do when I am in revision you know, sometimes I will, I will write a scene, I'll write a dialogue, especially the very first draft of this book I, I wrote. I think you know, I, I write things very quickly and it's like a purging, you know, you know I, it was in three, two, two or three months that I wrote 90 to 87,000 words of the first draft of this book. Wow. Um, and it's, I just was like up, you know, 12 hours, like 12 hours just writing and writing, like calling out of work. It was, it was not healthy um but I think part of what let me do that was I I was fictionalizing some things or simplifying things and and so you know if if one thing happened it was because we were poor and and that narrative of like oh we were poor so x y and z it's it's a simplification there are often many other things that go into it and it, part of that revision process is like parsing out um you know what really went into that moment was it just because we were poor or were there other things uh, at stake. So an example would be, um, you know, I, I sucked my thumb for a very long time. And so my front teeth are crooked, but my grandma didn't want to get me braces. And the first time I wrote it, I'm like, because we were poor, it's like, well, you know, we had like, we were, we were like low income kids. We were like poverty level. Like we had health insurance, like it would have been mostly covered. So it wasn't that it was, it wasn't entirely that we were poor. It was actually that my grandmother had gotten braces for one of her kids when he was younger and, and, you know, like it hurt, it wasn't comfortable and she couldn't handle it. She could not handle that. He was the little, a little bit uncomfortable. Um, and, and that's why, you know, it's part of why she became such an enabler to my dad. She couldn't handle even like a little bit of his discomfort. And so it wasn't that she, um, it wasn't that we were poor. It was actually like this much more like complex, reason and sometimes it doesn't make sense you know within a scene to sort of derail it and to go into that deep history and so then that's something i think like things get pulled out become other essays become other yeah whatever
0: oh yeah no uh In the memoir, you describe a fellow um, MFA student criticizing your writing or commenting your writing as angry. And yet this manuscript actually feels like one of the least angry memoirs I've I've read. I mean, the tone feels kind of more open, loving, understanding, and honest about your family's struggle without sugarcoating any of it. But you you describe them as individuals who each walk their own paths and make their own decisions even when you don't agree with them. I mean, how did you kind of uh, find that tone and perspective for the memoir. And I guess, uh, along with that, how do you react to that kind of almost tone policing that suggests certain writers need to kind of mute their uh, emotions?
1: Yeah, no, that was a really, that was a really hard day when I got, and it was interesting, because um, the way that that workshop worked, you know, all of our feedback went into this combined folder in Dropbox and so we could all like read the letters that other people were writing um, the members in our in our class and that letter that he wrote to me without advice like didn't make it into that shared folder it was like sent only to me and so he knew even as he was writing it that he was he was saying something that wasn't productive and that could be harmful and he was embarrassed to share it or like let it be seen by other people Um, and so, you know, like I, when I received that, it was like really heartbreaking because I didn't want to, I didn't want to be writing what people call trauma porn. Like I didn't want to, um, be misrepresenting my family or for the characters I was creating to be seen only through that one lens. Like I really was trying very hard to, to be careful and nuanced about their lives and so I took that, you know, that letter to my professor and had a conversation with him. And um, you know, he offered to like, talk to that student. I'm like, no, that's not necessary. Just like, I just need to know, like, is that like, please just tell me, like, is that what I'm doing? And he had said, you know, like, actually, like that comment comes more from his feelings about his own work. And, and I think that that was a really significant moment for me as someone who you know, was thinking about being a teacher of creative writing and, and how important it is for us to encourage our students to like decenter themselves when it comes to giving feedback, because it's not about, it's not about you. It's not about what you would do with this piece. It really is, you know, what is the, the writer trying to do with their work and how do you help them make it the best that it can be? Um, yeah.
0: Yeah, that's great advice. Um, your reconnection with your, your um, Navajo heritage, your mom's uh, Navajo heritage, and, and your extended family forms a really important part of the last half of the memoir. But you, you avoid plotting it uh, as a simple redemption arc that we often get in, in kind of memoirs. How did you write about these experiences in a way that I think maintains their, their complexities and, and nuances in your life?
1: <laughs> yeah. Oh gosh. I mean, uh, I couldn't thinking about that, like resisting a resolution art. I, I think part of it is that I couldn't conceive of a way this would be neatly resolved. Um, uh, there were, there were so many threads, so many lives on the page and, you know, as I, you know, I turned in the first draft of this book for my thesis project, um, a month before I got married to my Canadian husband and moved from Tucson to Canada, you know, six months after like less than six months after we had first met, started talking. So like, I, I think one of the problems is like my life kept changing so dramatically. Like I was moving across country and, and, you know, after, after that event, then like a year later, uh, I get this job and then we're relocating again, we're moving to Victoria and suddenly I'm a professor at a university and my sister is pregnant and having a baby and struggling with her sobriety. And so, you know, it's, it's like, well, how does a life end or tie up neatly? And and I don't think, I think that a lot of memoirs that, that give you that neat resolution at the end, um, aren't being totally honest and they're, and they're sometimes like projecting into like, well, people love those like, stories of resilience where a person can overcome any situation and if they're like internally like strong, but I think that it's, it leans too heavily on like the, like this person is exceptional. Um, and that wasn't the story, that didn't feel authentic or real because I still struggle with my mental health and I, I struggle with like, how do I support my sister? How do I not enable my sister? Like. How do I keep those relationships going? And so life goes on, these things continue and keep moving forward. And all I could think to do as I was turning in this last draft, last draft to my editor was, you know, where do those things, where are those things currently? And and how do I feel currently about those things? And, and maybe even a glimmer of like, what am I looking forward to? Like, what do I, what I hope will happen? Even though you know hope is feels like a dangerous thing to me sometimes like <laughs> i i don't <laughs> i don't hope for too much um i keep them small and manageable <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs>
0: Oh, in, in your uh, uh, wonderful essay, Blood Quantum, you mentioned how your memory, this very early childhood memory of a, of a visit, your visit back to the Navajo reservation with your family, uh, you pieced it together from other people's stories, a photo from that trip, and your certificate of Indian blood. Can you talk a little bit about how our memories are often these kind of composites put together from different sources? And it, it kind of struck me that this idea of a composite memory seems to kind of connect to that that create a process that you describe of, of Navajo rug weaving. Is there a connection there
1: as well? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, I think our, our memories are composites and sometimes memories can contradict or conflict each other. And that, that, that sometimes there are different cell. I don't know. It's like there are, are different versions of us inside of our own brains, where there, you know, for me, there's the one that's, that's the realist. And, you know, like when I start, when I start to hope or like plan for like the best thing that could happen, there's this other part of me and like, well, here's all the ways that it could go wrong. And so I, I think that when I have like, when I'm experiencing these memories, those two selves are often recording like slightly different versions of them or, and, and then one sometimes like gains prominence and, I think a lot of the work that I've had to do in, in my relationships as an adult has been to figure out like which voice is dominant here and which one is trying to convince me that, you know, every human interaction, you're interpreting that interaction based on not just like that person, your relationship with that person, your history of that with, person, with that person, but the long, long history of of relationships you've had like that one. And I think that's, that's a way in which like I've learned to keep myself safe is, well, I, I lump people into these groups and like this kind of person is gonna treat me this way. And when they say this, they, they actually mean this. And I've, I'm starting to have to unlearn some of, of that because it keeps me safe, but it also isolates me from people and it makes it hard to trust people and it makes it hard to open up to people.
0: Great, thank you. Uh, you're you're a bit of a tangent here. Your book touches on the importance of online spaces and communities and especially massively multiplayer online games in, in your life. I think at one point you go on in Club Penguin with your little sister and you meet, <laughs> you meet boyfriends and your future husband in online games like World of Warcraft. Can you talk to us about how these, these online uh, worlds in which we often adopt new persona and actually build lasting relationships and, and communities? affect our sense of identity and even shape our memories I understand your current writing project is, is tackling some of these issues
1: yeah I think you know that's sort of the one of the next projects like books I'm not sure exactly what form it will take but, but that is sort of the next thing that I'm working on is is this maybe collection of essays about gaming online gaming communities and video game addiction and especially relationships that that people form and, and experience in those online spaces. Because you're right that a lot of it is you're constructing an identity. Um, and, and I think a lot of the spaces that I that I've been in, you know, the people that you meet are still very much the people that they are. Um, it there's there's not as much as the well like you can be anyone or anything. I think people still want to be themselves. Um, but oh, what was I going to say? Um, but they can also be, so they can be like great spaces where if you have trouble forming like relationships in real life for whatever reason, you know, especially when I was in central Pennsylvania, it was because I was brown in a very conservative, very racist, you know, like there were like KKK marches uh, downtown when I was in high school, um, and Confederate flags all over the place. And so it was very difficult to develop like strong friendships in, in that physical space. And so that's why I was looking online. Um, but, but people who are are looking for relationships online aren't always honest about sort of all of the emotional baggage they're bringing into those spaces. And, um, you're, you're having fun. You're like having a good time. Um, and so the relationships themselves can, can often be pretty surface level and, and you're just like tiptoeing around each other's, um, you know, problems or histories or families. And that can be an alluring way to live in a social space, but it can also, um, be a way for a person to bury a lot of a lot of things that they're they're trying to avoid or deal with and so it's very much an escapist an escapist world
0: great thank you maybe uh one last question um uh before we we have you read and i always ask this you i mean you've got a long career ahead of you your your first book is out uh, but if you can project your your imagination into the the very distant uh, future and, and feel to embrace to hope how would you like to be remembered as a as a writer and an artist
1: Oh, <laughs> uh, that's a, like a, a hard question to answer. I'm not entirely sure. Um, you know, like I, that I, I think honesty is is really important to me. Um, I love, uh, yeah, honesty. And then uh, I'm okay. If, I, I think people think this book is is a little bit dark, and I and I don't think that it's dark, but I do think that it is sad and, and I, I feel comfortable in that space. So if you want to be a little bit sad, um, <laughs> I think this is a, a, a book for
0: you. Great. Well, I understand you've got an uh, excerpt that uh, you,
1: you can share with us. Yeah. Um, so this is like the beginning of the, the second section of the book. A few days after Marie and I went through my mother's things, my grandmother called to tell me my sister turned herself in to serve a years old warrant issued after Eileen broke for probation in her small Pennsylvanian town. Grandma said she would spend at least eight months in YCP, York County prison, and she gave me my sister's inmate number to write her letters. When we first moved to Pennsylvania, we wrote letters to our parents because our father was j- in jail again too frequent DUIs, and in those days of exorbitant long-distance charges, our mother rarely called. In my mother's papers, I find the letters I wrote to her. I tell her about the first time we saw snow. The single sentence makes me remember clearly the flurries that dissolved on the warm surface of the grocery store's parking lot, and the way grandma laughs at our our over-excitement in my letters to my mother, I tell her I miss her and complain about my sister, the brat. I tell her about our new, pet, our new pet, a parakeet named Ripple, who we teach to say, pretty bird. I tell her the names of the girls at school, which all end in I or Y, and complain about how hard it is to make new friends. My mother never wrote back, or if she did, grandma didn't give me her letters. My father's letters arrived in envelopes stamped with red warnings. This correspondence originates from a correctional institution. Grandma bought me a scrapbook and a package of photo mounting corners. And each time I received a letter from my father, I carefully pressed it onto a new page. With the money we sent him, my father bought bought a pad of drawing paper and colored pencils. And every few weeks, he sent us a new work of art. Most of his drawings featured Garfield in a striped prison regalia with a ball and chain attached to his back paw. You ever heard of a pet rock?" he jokes. Garfield plotted escape and tried to order pizzas to the jail while the guards were asleep. My father sold a letterhead to other inmates for commissary money so he could buy coffee and cigarettes. I sometimes wonder how many kids and how many girlfriends might have received letters with my father's drawings and if they saved those letters too. My sister's letters arrived stamped with similar warnings Beginning in middle school, she was sent to juvenile recovery centers, foster care, and boot camp. She spent six months in juvenile detention. This would be her second time serving at YCP. People, friends, teachers, counselors, my own family, often asked how my sister and I turned out so differently. I used to say, I didn't know.
0: Great! Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Danielle, and, and congratulations uh, again on on Dog Flowers. It's it's a monumental achievement, and it's available now at, uh, at a better independent bookstores as, as well as a certain billion dollar uh, online death star. So th- <laughs> <laughs> yeah. thanks, thanks so much, Danielle. Yeah.
1: Thank you.